Good morning, New Life Church. I'm glad you're here. Are you glad you're here? Two people are glad they're here. Come on now. Come on now. I know the sermon is your favorite 30 minutes of the week, isn't it? All right. Bunch of liars in here is what you are. It's a bunch of liars. <laughs> uh, I mean, I hope, you're, I hope you're at least partly honest with yourself there. I mean, I hope you come this morning feeling like God might speak to you. Because I truly believe that God has a word for you. This morning, he wants to say something to you that you need to hear this morning. I believe that. All the time. And I, I guess my prayer for you is just, I know God's gonna speak. My prayer for you is that your ears would be open not just to hear the words that, that I'm gonna say are gonna come from uh, the Bible, but that you might be listening to God's voice speaking to you uh, and have an open heart to receive that and to respond to that. So that's my prayer for, for you um, over these 30 minutes or so. I don't know if some of you are like really into reading books I normally just wait till the movie version comes out. I, that's why I was really thrilled when the Bible miniseries came out a few years ago. So this is great. Uh, but uh, I, I'm not the, the, the biggest book reader. I know some of you, you, you love books. I wonder what piece of literature has had the greatest impact in shaping human history. Been a whole bunch of really important works written over the centuries, maybe millennia, that have had great impact in the world. You know, maybe... Uh, Plato's Republic, I don't know if any of you are into like Greek philosophy and all of that which shaped Western civilization. Plato's Republic, I haven't read that. I heard that's a book. Magna Carta was a really important document. It kind of transformed our cultures and societies and government and democracy. That was really important. The American Constitution, I think, was a really transformative document. Um, not just in the States, but, but probably around the world. Maybe, the, maybe not so much anymore. The Communist Manifesto really shaped human history and people's thought. I don't, there's probably a whole bunch of others. Harry Potter, maybe, for you, has been the most influential. I don't know. Um, I want to suggest, though, that, that maybe it's the record of a teaching that was given about 2,000 years ago on a hillside in a region called Galilee, which is in present-day Israel by a man named Jesus. It's a teaching that's recorded for us in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter five, six, and seven. We call it the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, and and this, this sermon is probably the most studied, most read, uh, most written about, most controversial, most misunderstood, most admired, teaching of Jesus that we have. We're going to spend some time this morning and through these weeks in this really powerful uh, sermon. Uh, the key word we're going to find in this teaching of Jesus is the word kingdom. It's a word that we're going to find coming up over and over again out of the mouth of Jesus in this teaching, uh, even as we set the stage for, uh, for this uh, sermon of Jesus, to kind of give the context for that, Matthew tells us, 
At the end of Matthew chapter four, before Jesus begins his teaching, it says Jesus went throughout Galilee teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom. What was he doing? Proclaiming the good news of the kingdom. He was healing diseases. News about him spread all over the whole region. People came to him uh, with their diseases, their pains. The demon-possessed came, those having seizures, the paralyzed, and he healed them all. And so he was attracting large crowds Uh, from the whole region. They were coming, listening and following him. What was he doing? He was sharing, he was proclaiming the good news of this kingdom. And when he launches into his teaching that we have beginning in chapter five, verse three, in the very first sentence, he uses the word kingdom. And then he's gonna talk about this kingdom over and over again. He's gonna tell us in this teaching what the kingdom of God is all about. What the kingdom of God looks like. If you were here last week when we began this series with kind of an intro message, we saw how throughout the Old Testament that God again and again spoke of this coming kingdom. It was gonna be a different kind of kingdom, not brought about by human hands, but it would have like heavenly origins. It would fill the whole earth. It would endure forever. This was gonna be a different kind of kingdom that God was going to usher in. And then we saw how Jesus, when he arrived, his very first words in the Gospels were, Repent for the kingdom of God has come near. Jesus came to establish this kingdom, this long promised kingdom of God on earth. With the coming of Jesus came the kingdom of God. And so what we had said last week is we need to think about this differently because I grew up kind of thinking that Jesus came to kind of give us a promissory note that one day I'm gonna bring you to heaven which is kind of true, but we kind of think that Jesus came from heaven to here to bring us from here to heaven, and we're just kind of waiting to get beamed up. That's not how the Bible describes why Jesus came. Jesus came, we're told over and over again, to bring heaven to earth, to establish God's kingdom here. And a day is coming when that kingdom will rule completely forever over the whole world. But Jesus came to bring the kingdom of God and the ways of the kingdom to us. And that's why this church is called New Life Church. It's not because someday we're gonna live a new life and boy, that's gonna be a nice day. It's because we're already living a new life through Jesus Christ. We're already experiencing his kingdom in many ways, not fully, but it is real. So Jesus came that we would experience that new life, the kingdom today. And as we're gonna see over these weeks, it's a radically different kind of kingdom. We're gonna call it the upside down kingdom. It is so different. What Jesus came to establish wasn't just tinkering around the edges of society and the world, okay? It was flipping it upside down, turning everything on its head. And so in the series, we're gonna look at this upside down kingdom of God. We're gonna look at the character of the kingdom And there's probably no better place in all the scriptures and all Jesus is teaching to see that most clearly than here at the beginning of this whole sermon, which is about the kingdom. These first 12 verses, uh, uh, Matthew 5, 1 to 12, we call the Beatitudes. I'm not exactly sure why they're called the Beatitudes, but they kind of describe for us the attitudes of the kingdom, the character of God's kingdom. Maybe maybe better than, than we have explained for us anywhere else. And so this is where we're gonna spend the next few weeks together, looking at these words. This is what Jesus says. This is how how it begins. We're told that Jesus 
had these crowds and he went up on a mountainside and he sat down and his disciples came to him. This is the beginning of Matthew chapter five and Jesus began to teach them and he said, now he's gonna run through these eight statements of blessing. They all begin with the word blessing. He's gonna describe for us the ways of God's kingdom. He begins, he says, blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. There you have it right in the very first statement, the kingdom Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Do you kind of see how it's like against the grain, counterintuitive, upside down? Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. The hungry are gonna be the ones that are filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. And the last one, eighth one, blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, okay? The blessed are the oppressed, go figure, we'll get there. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kind of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, Jesus says, because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. And so here he has these eight statements, characters of the kingdom of God that don't just describe for us what we call orthodoxy, right teaching, but orthopraxy, which is, just means right living. Jesus is describing the living, the way of living in this kingdom he is establishing. And it all begins with Jesus on a mountainside. Now, now I, some of you, you've been there. You've been to, to these mountains in Galilee. They're not really mountains. So, so Matthew's kind of embellishing a little bit here when he says mountainside. He's, maybe he's kind of like us Manitobans. Like someone made a community over there and called it Stony Mountain. Was that a joke? Like was that a joke that just caught on? I grew up in Alberta on the foothills. Okay, I saw mountains. I drive by Sony Mountain, and I, am, am I missing something? Is there something else here that I'm missing? I hope people Google search Stony Mountain Ski Hill before they make the trip. That's all I'm saying. I hope they image search that. They could be really disappointed. What is it about Manitoba? Like we're trying to compensate. Riding Mountain, Turtle Mountain, Duck Mountain. Come on, there are no mountains. <laughs> Who are we kidding? Although, now I'm, I'm raising three little Manitobans, and it's funny, we'll drive down Highway 67 here towards the lights at Highway 7, and Pippa always loves the hill we go down. <laughs> it's exciting, she had me for, the hill! It's like a three foot drop in elevation. Ooh, the butterflies in my tummy, ooh, the hill. Anyway. So, so Matthew's talking about this mountainside, it's not really a mountainside per se, it's more like a hill. But I wonder if maybe, maybe Matthew is trying to evoke something else in the memory of his audience. He was writing to a very Jewish audience. And um, I think maybe he's trying to invoke uh, the image of Moses coming down the mountain. If you know that story, Moses went up and God gave him the law for his people, the way they ought to live. All of these laws, including the Ten Commandments, he comes down the mountain to God's people. That was a real mountain. And he delivers God's way, his law, to the people. And I think what's happening here is we're supposed to see that Jesus is on the mountainside and he's delivering to us a deeper, full understanding of God's way. 
Instead of the Ten Commandments, these are the eight Beatitudes, the ways of God's kingdom. And he begins here, and we're just gonna look at this first one this morning, but I think there's a logical sequence to these, as we're gonna see. It has to begin with this one, okay? Because before you can know what it looks like to live within the kingdom, you gotta know how you get into the kingdom. That's first. That's what this first statement is all about. Who receives, what type of person receives the kingdom of God? And this is what he says, Matthew 5, 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. A few times in the Gospels, we see people asking Jesus kind of one version of really the same question. Uh, how do you enter the kingdom of heaven? Now, now some people put the question this way, like, like this guy in, in Luke 18. Uh, a rich young ruler comes up to Jesus. He says, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Which is the same question. What must I do to receive, to enter into the kingdom of God? What must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, when you inherit something, when you're talking about inheritance, normally you're talking about something of value. And so this person is saying, the kingdom of God, eternal life is something of this great value. How do I acquire or receive this thing which is of great value? Well, Jesus answers the man's question as he continues. He's gonna kind of toy with him here a little bit. Jesus says, you know the commandments. You shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not give false testimony, honor your father and mother. He's just kind of running through the 10 commandments. And what does the guy say? I've done all of these things ever since I can remember. Check, 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 check. Okay. So when Jesus heard this, he said to him, you still lack one thing. Sell everything you have and give it to the poor. And then you will have the treasure in heaven. That thing you're seeking? Sell all you got and give it to the poor. When this man heard this, he became very sad. Why? Because he was very wealthy. Jesus looked at him and said, how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. Indeed, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle, which, if you think about that, that's impossible. Now, I've heard some people say, I grew up with this understanding that there was some gate that was called the camel gate, or the eye of the the, the needle, and camels had to go on their knees to crawl through it, and it was hard, but they could do it, and that's not true. What Jesus is, is saying is he's talking about an impossibility here. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. Well, that's a little unsettling. We'll talk about what he means. And it's certainly unsettling for Jesus' disciples. They were there. They heard this interaction. Jesus is essentially saying, you need to be poor in order to be rich. We'll unpack that. You need to be poor in order to be rich which is very counterintuitive. Uh, We have a saying in in our society that goes something like this. You all know it. The rich get richer and the poor get poorer. Is that true? That is true. The rich get richer and the poor get poorer. Since that recession in 2008, you know, you hear on the news, like all this wealth, the stock market has gone up. It's great. You know who it's great for? It's best for the rich because almost all of that new wealth has gone to those that already had a lot of wealth. 
the rich get richer and the poor get poorer and that's kind of the way of the world. But Jesus is talking about a different way. He says, in order to be rich, you need to be poor. What must you receive to receive the kingdom? Jesus says, poverty. Poverty. Now that would have shocked his disciples. And in fact, it, it, we see their shock here because the very next verse, the disciples say, after they heard Jesus interact with this man, huh, who then can be saved if Jeremy here, his name was probably Jeremy, because Jeremy's always have their life together, don't they? You ever met a Jeremy that didn't have their life together? Any Jeremy's here? Rusty's are a mess. Just put it that way. Jeremy's always have their life together. Okay, if this guy, this upstanding citizen, this business leader in our community who has acquired wealth the right way, and he's obviously a very moral, righteous man, if he can't be saved... If he can't enter the kingdom, then who can? So they're kind of exasperated. Who, who, who? Anyway, they were thinking, I mean, the way they thought is that riches equaled righteous. That's the way they thought. Riches equal righteous. If this guy can't do it, then what hope do I have? But Jesus isn't talking about being materially rich or materially poor. Okay, being rich and poor is nothing to God. Each comes with their own dangers. Being rich isn't bad and being poor isn't good. It's not how it works. He's not talking about being materially poor. Jesus is talking about spiritual poverty. He says, blessed are the poor in spirit. What does that mean? It's a really important question because they are the ones that receive the kingdom of God. So that's a really important question. What does it mean to be poor in spirit? Well, just before this story in Luke 18, Jesus tells a parable. Now, you know, parables are stories that Jesus uses to kind of, um, to teach principles, truths, and, and it helps us to understand at a deeper level. And so, so Jesus gives us a picture of what this looks like to be poor in spirit. In Luke 18, 9 to 14, we're told that a man, maybe a Pharisee, a very religious person uh, came, or a few of them came, and they were confident, we're told, of their own righteousness, and because of that, they looked down on, on other people. So then Jesus told them this parable. He said, two men went up to the temple to pray. One was a Pharisee, and the other a tax collector. We're gonna be in these verses for a few minutes. It's Luke 18, nine, if you wanna follow. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I'm not like other people robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector over here. I fast twice a week, and I give a tenth of all I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance, Jesus said. He would not even look up to heaven, but he beat his breast and he said, God have mercy on me, a sinner. Now Jesus is gonna tell him what this is all about. I tell you that this man, this tax collector, rather than the other, the Pharisee, went home justified before God. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Now, if Jesus had just told this story, uh, story about these two guys, and then he didn't interpret it, but he just said, okay, I just want to take a poll of the audience. Who do you think went home justified? Everybody to a person would said, why, of course, the Pharisee. 
the one who leads a good life, who's following the law, the Pharisee went home right before God. Duh. Jesus is turning things upside down here. He's showing us the difference between the way of the kingdom and the way of the world. What, what he's showing us is, is that in, in, in relationship, the relationship between us and God, the way of the world is the way of merit, let's call it. And the way of God's kingdom is the way of mercy. And they're opposites. The way of the world is the way of merit. This was the way of the Pharisee. Now, if, if, if you know your Bible, you know who Pharisees were, right? Like, the Pharisees were the religious guys. They were the epitome of godliness, apparently. They were so devoted to the law meticulously. In fact, like this Pharisee said that uh, he gave a tenth, of course, the tithe. Not only did, did they just tithe the paycheck, 10%, right down to the penny. I didn't round down. I'll round down. Gotta understand. No, no, right down to the penny, and not just the, the, the paycheck, but we're told this is true. They would take their garden herbs, they would take the seeds they gathered, and they would actually count every single one of their seeds, and then they would take 10% of their seeds and, and tithe that to the temple. Not one seed less. Probably not one seed more either but certainly not one seed less. They were meticulous in being devoted to obeying God's law. This guy said he fasted twice a week. Wow, that's going over and above. Like according to Jewish law, you had to fast once a year. The Day of Atonement, everybody fasted. These guys, Monday, Thursday, every week, Monday and Thursday, fasted. They went over and above to show their devotion to God to strive to be righteous. And so you see in this Pharisee's prayer, he, he, he begins by talk, saying to uh, God, addressing God, but then the rest of his prayer, he's just talking about himself. In fact, five times, he, he refers to I. God, thank you that I am not like that sort of person and that sort of person and that person. I haven't done this and I haven't done that. I have done this and I have done that. Amen. This is the Pharisee's prayer. It's all about what he has done and what he hasn't done. Never does he ask anything of God. He's essentially just presenting his list of credentials, his works before God, and that's what he's focused on, what he has done, how he, and then how he is better than this other person behind him. And we find that this man is quite confident that he has enough righteousness that he can present that to God. You know, if he's at a job description, okay, Pharisee, what makes you think that you're qualified to receive the kingdom of God? Well, here's my body of work. I think that should suffice. And so this man is confident that he's done enough to secure eternal life and secure his relationship with God to secure his place in the kingdom. Uh, this is the way of the world. Now, almost everyone I talk to out there, once in a while, you know, you have spiritual conversations with people. Um, but this is what I see in the world. Everyone relates to God the way this Pharisee relates to God. It, it's by what I do. It's, it's the weight of my righteousness. So, there's some people out there 
I'm pretty, what, what, if, you, if you died and you went to heaven and you knocked on heaven's door and God, and God opened it and he said, why should I let you in here? What would you say? And they'd say, I've lived a good life. You know, I was faithful to my spouse. I, 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 was, I, was, I gave to cancer care when they knocked on my door. You know, I was good to my kids. I, I lived a good life. And they could itemize all of that. It's, it's all one way of, of thinking about our relationship with God in the kingdom the way the Pharisee does. It's through my efforts can I secure entry into God's kingdom. It's totally based on my deeds. Now for some, that leads to confidence. Because it's like this Pharisee, wow, I feel like I'm pretty good. I'm certainly, if we're grading on a curve here, like I'm certainly got an A because there's lots of people behind me like this tax collector over here. And so he felt pretty confident. There's some people, that they, they still think the same way about relating with God, but instead of having confidence, they're, they're maybe despondent about that or discouraged about that. These are the sort of people, if you invite them to church, hey, come to church, we're having this cool thing. And they'd say, whoa, yeah, you wanna see lightning come down? Hmm? That church is gonna fall down when I walk through those doors, which is a way of saying what? I could never be good enough for your God. If there is a God, man, the things I've done, I think I'm a lost cause. It's the same way of thinking, right? It's, 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 it's relating to God on the basis of what I have done. For some, that leads to confidence, like the Pharisee. For some, that leads to maybe being despondent or discouraged. And that's understandable. That's the way the world, that's how the world works. You apply for a job, and you've got to show your qualifications, that's the way the world works. We live in a world where the way is merit, and that's how we relate to God, naturally. Jesus turns it all upside down and shows us that the, the, the way of God's kingdom is very different. It's not the way of merit, it's the way of mercy. You know, this rich young ruler, why, uh, coming back to that, who was turned away because he had, or he, he couldn't sell all he had and he left being sad. Uh, Jesus said, you know, it's hard for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven. What's going on there? It's not bad to be rich. The problem wasn't the man's riches. The problem was that that man was relying on his own righteousness before God, right? Because he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And, and, and Jesus listed some of God's law, just kind of quoted the Bible. And he said, yeah, yep, 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 done that, done that. W what is he doing? Well, Jesus knew exactly what he was doing. He, he was trying to justify himself. Yes, I've done enough. Uh, and so Jesus, he's gonna pop his little bubble, right? And he says, okay, you think you've done enough? Here's what I want you to do. I want you to sell everything and give it to the poor and then come follow me. What is Jesus doing? Have you sold everything and given to the poor? Have you sold everything? No. You still have clothes on your back. You got some nice jewelry, I see, if you. Was, Jesus never asked everyone he came to to sell everything. What's happening here? He's challenging this man's way of thinking about his relationship with God. What he's saying is, if you think that you can buy the kingdom of God by your own works, you can enter that way, it'll always be too expensive for you. If you try to pay for it, the price will always be too high. Jesus is gonna show, and he shows in the Sermon on the Mount that we, we, have, a, our, we have a deeper problem than we thought. The, the Pharisee has a deeper problem than he thinks. You know, he, the Pharisee didn't think he was perfect. He knew he was a sinner. He just thought that he had enough good to kind of counterbalance the bad. 
But Jesus shows us that, that, that sin, kind of the mess in our lives and our hearts, it's a deeper problem than the Pharisee thought. I mean, if you go on in the Sermon on the Mount, he'll say stuff like, hey, you've heard it said, don't commit adultery. I tell you, even if you've lusted after another person in your heart, you've committed adultery. Whoa, how you doing? How you doing, Pharisee? You've heard it said, do not murder, but I tell you, if anyone has hated someone in their heart, they've committed murder. How you doing, Pharisee? Jesus is showing us that our problem is deeper than many of us think, which is why throughout the Bible, when you see people coming face to face with God on occasion, when, when, when they behold God's glory, his holiness, how do they respond? They respond with what you might call spiritual poverty. Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah, a good man, a godly man. God comes to him in this vision and he beholds the glory of God and what does he say? He falls on his face and he says, woe is me. I am undone, I'm ruined. I'm a man of unclean lips. And I dwell among people of unclean lips. I have seen God now and he's undone. He recognizes in that moment his insufficiencies and his inadequacies. Peter, when, when Jesus comes to Peter to call him to be his disciple, Jesus does great, a great miracle. Peter experiences the glory of God in Jesus. And, and, and what does he do? He falls on his face. He says, depart from me, Lord. I'm a sinful man. Confronted with the glory and the holiness of God, the only proper response is to recognize the utter bankruptcy of our own righteousness. And so this tax collector experiences this spiritual bankruptcy. He comes and he's, he, his posture is different. He's hanging his head. He's convicted and his prayer is very simple. He says to God, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Do you notice what he's, let's look at that sentence. He doesn't say, God, have mercy on me because last week I looked at that thing I shouldn't have looked at and I did that thing I shouldn't have done and I feel really bad about that. You know, kind of like that old-fashioned Catholic, like come in your weekly sins and get absolved there and then kind of go back to your life and the next week come back. That's not what he's doing. He's not saying I've done these bad things. What he's saying is I, the problem isn't what I have done. The problem is what I am. Have mercy on me, God. I am a sinner. He recognized the depth of his problem, that he is completely contaminated. There is nothing that is purely righteous about him. He is just a sinner. And so here Jesus is giving us a glimpse of, of spiritual poverty, um, which is having nothing to justify oneself before God. What is Spiritual poverty. Someone has put it this way. It's a sense of powerlessness in ourselves. It is a sense of spiritual bankruptcy and helplessness before God. It is a sense of moral uncleanness before God. It is a sense of personal unworthiness before God. It is a sense that if there is to be any life or joy or usefulness, it will have to be all of God and all of his grace. 
The word sense is there, a sense of one's powerlessness, a sense of one's inadequacies. Why is that sense so important? It's because, you know, the, 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 the Pharisee and the tax collector actually had something in common. What, what was it they had in common? They both were sinners. Their need was identical. The difference was that one guy recognized it and the other one was trying to justify, secure God's favor through his efforts, through his own righteousness. Their problem was the same, but one person sensed it. He knew he was spiritually poor, spiritually bankrupt, had nothing of value to offer God. And Jesus says, that's the one who's blessed with the kingdom. It's not the sinner. We're all sinners. The, the Pharisee had the same need. The difference was one sensed that spiritual poverty and the other didn't. So the tax collector comes before God for this job and God says, well, why do you think you deserve the kingdom of God? Why do you, why do you, why do you think you should have heaven, have me? And he says, I have nothing to offer you. I have nothing that would qualify me for this, absolutely nothing. I just throw myself at your mercy. And what Jesus is saying is the only way to enter the kingdom of heaven is has absolutely nothing to offer for it. For those who try to pay, the price is far too high. For those who have nothing to buy it with, they alone can afford the kingdom of heaven, according to Jesus. Does, does God just ignore our sin? Like, on, on what basis does he give this guy mercy? Well, it's not because God just ignores this man's sin when he recognizes his state. I mean, a good judge, if someone said, oh, judge, I did it, I murdered all those people, I did everything I'm accused of, a just judge would still pronounce a just judgment. Gee, God doesn't ignore the man's sin. That's not what allows him to enter the kingdom of heaven. It's that God, by his mercy and grace, has paid for the man's sin. It has been accounted for. And I mean, this is, this is the good news of the gospel. This is the gospel of Jesus. I, these, let me just read these words. To me, like, I hope this thrills your soul. To me, these are just incredible words. This is Paul in Titus chapter three, verse four. When the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and the renewal by his Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that having been justified by his grace, we might become heirs having the hope of eternal life. Because of his grace, we might inherit, we might enter the kingdom of God. Jesus came and he died on that cross and he took your place and he paid for your sin so that you might know the riches of God's grace and you might live in the riches of God's grace every single day so that you might be free from the stress, the worry, the anxiety, the fear, the guilt of wondering where one stands and trying really hard to be good enough to secure God's favor. 
the poor will become rich in God's grace. This is how Paul puts it in Ephesians chapter 2, 8 and 9. He says, it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works. It is by our works so that no one can boast. You are saved. You, are, you enter the kingdom, not through anything you have done, but you enter it by God's grace through what he has done on your behalf in Jesus that we receive by faith by faith in Jesus Christ. The poor in spirit are those who have put their faith in, G- in, in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. The poor in spirit are those, well, just, just kind of three words to me that kind of sums it up. The poor in spirit are those who have been convicted of their sin, convicted of their spiritual state. See, the Pharisee wasn't, but the tax collector was convicted. Convicted not just of the bad things one has done. We, we, we don't just need to repent of our sin. We need to repent of our, all of our attempts to be good enough for God. To repent of our righteousness, of trying to do it that way. To repent of ever thinking that maybe we could be good enough for God. The poor in spirit are first of all convicted of their spiritual lack and then they're convinced of Jesus. They're convinced that he on, his, on the cross has paid for their sin, has secured God's grace. They're convicted, they're convinced of Jesus and then they confess Jesus as Lord and Savior of their life. Those are the poor in spirit. That's the good news that Jesus has done it all, that it comes by mercy, not by our merit. But that's good news that can only be received as good news by the humble. Jesus says, only the humble can come into the kingdom of heaven. The only qualification is that you have no qualifications. God's kingdom is a place of grace through and through. That's how we enter God's kingdom and that's how we continue to live in God's kingdom. It is by his grace. Which is why Paul always kept going on about why we should never be boasting in ourselves. Because he said to the church in Corinth, there were people there that thought they were pretty good. They were pretty spiritual. They were, had, were pretty gifted. They'd accomplished some, some amazing things. And, and he says to them in 1 Corinthians 4, he says, what do you have that you did not receive from God? Like, list it, please. What do you have that you did not receive from God by his grace? Nothing. Everything you are, you are by God's grace. Everything you have and you have done and you will do, you will do by God's grace alone. We have received nothing. We have done nothing in ourselves but what we have received from God. We are totally dependent on God through and through, not just as we enter the kingdom, but as we live in the kingdom. So as we think about bringing this home, what does it look like to live in a place of grace, in a kingdom of grace? First of all, it means that we can boast only in Jesus Christ. There is no place for pride at all in the kingdom of God. How could there be pride? Everything that we are and do comes is God's work of grace in us. As Paul says, if we boast at all, we boast only in our Lord Jesus Christ. I mean, he had made this shift from thinking about uh, uh, 
from, from going from the way of merit to the way of, of mercy, we, we see this in Philippians chapter three where Paul talks about how he, he had the longest list of, uh, list of credentials. I mean, he had done it all. He was a Pharisee. He was a blameless according to the law. But then he goes on, he says, but whatever were gains to me, Whatever I considered my own righteousness, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. That is, I've kind of let go of all of those things to justify myself. I consider them garbage. Now, I don't know what your version says. Your version might say dung, which is an interesting four-letter word. It's actually like a better four-letter word there for dung. You know, like this was kind of like, this is the Bible's version of a swear word. You know, it's like where the readers are like, oh, you can say that in the Bible, Paul? Mm, no, we can have a church board meeting about this, Paul. Is that S-H-I-T word? Let me say it. He's saying, I consider everything that I used to use to justify myself that now. That I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith by his grace. He had been converted from the way of merit to the way of mercy. He knew and he lived in God's grace and so there was no place for boasting except boasting of what God has done for us, what he is doing in us. Um, there's a song I heard yesterday, CHVN. I don't know who sang it, the name of the song, but just the one line struck me. It said, I'm just a nobody telling everybody about somebody who saved me. That's what he's saying. We're all just a, a nobody telling everybody about somebody who saved me, who made us rich in God's grace. So we're not in the kingdom of God because of who we are, Jesus says, but because of who God is and what God has done. And the only way to receive that is to be poor, to have open hands, to let go of everything that one is holding to try to present to God, to justify one's position, and to let that all go and have open hands to receive the grace of God. So we boast only in Jesus Christ in the kingdom of grace. We compare ourselves with no one in the kingdom of grace. If you look at that story, the Pharisee was, was comparing himself. Well, I'm not like that guy back there. I heard rumors about that guy. Woo, I'm not like that. He was comparing himself, but the, you notice the, the tax collector, he didn't play that game at all. He didn't go, oh, I can never be like that guy up there, God. Oh, have mercy on me. That guy's so good. I can never. He didn't see the guy. He didn't care about the guy. He wasn't comparing himself to the guy. It had nothing to do with him. It was just between him and God and the grace he needed and the mercy he received from God. In the kingdom of grace, we compare ourselves with no one, which again means there's no place for pride because we're better than anybody else because that's we are what we are by God's grace. And, 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 and if we feel we lack, we're not what that person is. That doesn't make us any lesser in God's kingdom, in the kingdom of grace because we compare ourselves with no one. Humility isn't thinking about yourself, uh, or sorry, you, you maybe heard this statement before. Humility isn't thinking less about yourself, it's thinking about yourself less. It's not saying, well, I'm not like that guy. I'll never be like that guy. 
Poor is me. I'm just a nobody over here, not like that guy. Humility isn't thinking less about yourself. It's thinking about yourself less. In the kingdom of grace, as we receive grace, so we give it out. We, have, we don't compare ourselves with others. We relate to one another through, through the mercy and the grace that God has given to us. In the kingdom of God's grace, we're motivated by gratitude. Why do we do what we do? Why do we get up tomorrow? Why do we obey? Why do we follow God? Why do we serve? We have been freed from having to obey and to follow and to do out of guilt or out of fear. We don't have to be like the Pharisee, working, striving, hoping that maybe it will be enough. No. We enter as poor men. We're made rich through our poverty. It's gratitude for God's grace that now compels us and moves us forward and following after him. We're motivated by, God, by, by gratitude in the kingdom of God's grace. And that's freeing. So the question for you as we bring this to a close here, the question to ask yourself, how do I really feel about myself as I think of myself in relationship to God? Which way am I following to relate to God? Or maybe a simpler way of putting it, who am I in this story? Because Jesus tells the story uh, with the intention that we're all going to find ourselves in here. And, and you will find yourself because there, you know what? There's no third type of person and there's no third way. There's only the way of merit and the way of mercy. There's only the way of our righteousness and the way of God's grace. There's not a third way. We are one or we are the other. Where are you in this story? That's for you to answer. I, I, I'm sure many of you, you have, you, you were that tax collector once, right? You came to that point of recognizing your inadequacies before God and you came and you confessed your need and you received his mercy and you've been, you've been brought into his kingdom and you've been born again by God's spirit and you've been given new life. Um, that's many of you. And, and maybe what you need this morning is you need a reminder that grace isn't just the way that we enter the kingdom. Grace is the way that we live every minute of every day in the kingdom of God. Maybe you need a reminder that we are not to compare ourselves to anybody else. We need a reminder that there is no place for pride, nothing to boast about in the kingdom of God. It is a kingdom of humility. Maybe, maybe this morning you've kind of reverted back to the old way you started by grace and you re reverted back to the old way of thinking about your relationship with God. And maybe, maybe that's not confidence in yourself. Maybe that's fear. Maybe you just feel like you are a loser and you fall short and God is definitely disappointed with you. You feel really down about what you lack and you need to hear again, the only qualification is to have no qualifications. You need to embrace grace, again, in a fresh way. We've got to do that. We've got to do that all the time. So, so maybe, maybe you, you're someone who's already entered the kingdom. Maybe you're here this morning and you are that tax collector right now. It's, it's kind of interesting how the setting of the story is very much like our setting right now, which kind of, it's good. This is God's gift to the preacher. It makes it easier for me to, to put you in this story. 
Because here you are, like just these two guys in the temple praying, here you are, sitting here in this place of worship to God, seeking him, looking to him, praying. The really cool thing about this story is that Jesus tells us that that sinner, that tax collector, went home justified. Just think of that. He came to the temple, he prayed this prayer, and Jesus said when he left and went home, he went home having been justified, past tense, completed work. You notice it didn't say, Jesus didn't say, that man left, started down a good path. You keep going, buddy. You're on the right path now. You're gonna get there some point. Just keep going down that road. That's not what he said. He went home justified. It had been done. In that moment, when he sought the mercy of God, when he acknowledged his spiritual poverty and threw himself on the mercy of God, in that moment, Jesus says, he entered the kingdom of heaven. He inherited eternal life. That's cool. What that means is, if you're that tax collector this morning, you can leave here and go home justified. You can enter the kingdom of God's grace now. And so he prayed this little prayer. There's no magic words, but I just threw a prayer up here kind of like it. You know me, I like to take something that requires fewer words and, and use more words. You know, it's a habit I have. So this is just kind of that little prayer. He prayed, he prayed but fleshed out. Jesus, I'm a sinner in need of your mercy. Thank you for dying on the cross in my place to pay the penalty for my sin. Please forgive my sin and be the Lord and Savior of your life. Make me the person you want to be and give me the life you want me to have. Amen. I mean, if you come as that tax collector, if you come in spiritual poverty and recognize your need for mercy and you know that you have no qualifications before God and you come and you ask for the kingdom, God says yes. It's the only way. And so maybe this morning, um, that's where you're at. And so what I'd like you know, to invite you to do if that's where you're at is to pray that prayer is to enter the kingdom of God, to receive God's grace, to go home justified. That's the promise of Jesus. That's how it starts. And so, I don't know where you're at. Who are you in the story? So at the beginning of my message, I said, God's gonna speak to you. I don't know what he's gonna say to you, but God's gonna speak to you. He always does. So I don't know what you've heard, but I, what I wanted you to do, all, all of us now, is just to take a moment to respond to that in prayer, okay? Let's, let's take a moment to pray just between yourself and God. If you feel comfortable to bow your head and close your eyes, you can do it that way. However you want to do that, just take a moment and uh, come before God. What is it that you need to pray after you've heard this? What is it you need to pray to say to God? Say it. Take a moment.
you prayed that prayer, I mean, I just would want to invite you to declare that. People keep their eyes closed. But if you just would want to declare that by raising your hand, you know, Jesus said, if you acknowledge my name before men, I'm going to acknowledge you before my Father in heaven. It's important that you declare that. You've come to that place. So that's a prayer you prayed in your heart. Why don't you lift your hand? God, we love you. We love you because we have come to understand that you are a God of limitless grace. Even though we are we're sinful people, we're messed up people, even though, Lord, we don't have anything really to offer you, um, <clears throat> You offer us the thing that we could never attain ourselves. You offer us eternal life. You offer us your kingdom. You offer us peace with you forever through your son, Jesus Christ, that we receive into our life just by faith in him and what he's done for us. We thank you for your mercy, Lord, that while we were sinners, you loved us and you sent Jesus to die in our place, to win our righteousness, and to secure our place in your kingdom. We thank you, Father, that we don't have to justify ourselves. We don't have to leave here and feel like we just have to work hard to keep our place with you. Lord, we can know that you have secured that. It doesn't rest on us. That's who you are. That's what you have done. And Lord, that just liberates us. It liberates us to live freely and serve you wholeheartedly without fear. It allows us to enjoy your grace and to offer it to other people. And so, Lord, um, might we be people who know your grace and extend your grace to others as we live in this kingdom, this kingdom of your grace. In Jesus' name, amen.